This is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. This is episode 10 of Dialogue Heritage, a podcast series exploring the history of dialogue through the lens of LDS history, American history, and academic history. Each episode, we discuss a five-year period of the journal's history from the founding in 1966 until today. This week, we're discussing 2010 to 2014. I want to thank our listeners. I get a lot of nice notes about how much people are enjoying this series, which I'm very grateful for. If you like it, please give us five stars in the app of your choice, and please donate to help support our mission. As we draw closer to the present, I expected it was going to be harder and harder to historically contextualize the materials we were seeing, to spot trends and topics, both because of the proximity in time and because of the proximity of the people. This is my generation, my people, and I thought that there might be something less exciting about this time, but I was wrong. I loved going over these issues and encountering again the really masterful scholarship as I believe that we started to move away from the let me tell you about something you don't know to let me explain something in extremely interesting ways about something that you thought that you knew. I found this period to be more engaged with theology and more reflective on the tradition and its meaning today. As a reminder, Christine Hagland took over as editor in 2009, just before we started this period. Matthew Bowman, now the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies, was the associate editor. Christine is the longest-serving editor in Dialogue's history at seven years in the role and had a huge impact on attracting new readers, contributors, and getting many BYU and church history folks involved. She also reinstituted the From the Pulpit series that gave voice to the meager preaching tradition of the Latter-day Saints, and these are really some of the choicest aspects of the journal. In the broader historical context, President Monson is in charge of the church, though we see him less and less over the course of this period. Elder Uchtdorf is in the First Presidency at the time and was a hugely popular figure. The church is shifting its rhetoric and approach to controversial same-sex marriage issues of the day. In 2000 and then again in 2008, the church had engaged in Californian politics, specifically trying to ban same-sex marriage. At this point, they increasingly are taking a defensive posture, citing religious freedom issues now, as Prop 8 and other bans on same-sex marriage hang by a thread, eventually going down in 2015. Second, the church also launches in 2012 a new pastoral outreach program, Mormons and Gays, to address the alienation that the years of anti-gay rhetoric and concern in the church had caused. This included some Salt Lake ordinances backed by the church to prohibit housing and employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, with some caveats, but still a striking win. There are also some big changes in the Mormon studies landscape during this time. Kathleen Flake leaves Vanderbilt Divinity School to occupy the new Richard Lyman Bushman Chair of Mormon Studies at the University of Virginia in 2012. The Maxwell Institute ousts controversial polemicist Daniel Peterson as the head of the Farms Review and presents a more professional and productive new line of Mormon scholarship. Peterson, for his part, kicks up a lot of dust as he founds a rival and controversial publication, The Interpreter. As blogging had done in previous decades, podcasting also proves to be a new disruptive technology, with John DeLynn's Mormon stories really leading the pack. There are other major social issues coming to the foreground during this period, including, of course, ordained women and the, the excommunication of Kate Kelly. 
in 2013 and in 2014, respectively. Oh yeah, did we also forget to mention that this is the Mormon moment with Mitt Romney's successful capture of the 2012 Republican nomination for president? Though he'd run in 2008, the interest in his religion did not diminish in the 2012 campaign, and Latter-day Saint scholars and bloggers had a lot to say about it. One of the features that Christine Hagland puts in place during this period are also interviews with famous scholars or LDS leaders, and sometimes lesser-known figures who have something really interesting to say. Chaco Okuzaki, Bob Orsi, Rene Girard, and many others are featured in really provocative discussions here. She also really plugged into the new blogging and social media networks that had emerged in the 2000s, as well as this blossoming of Mormon conferences during this time period. We discussed the Faith and Knowledge Conference in our last episode that I was involved in, but you've also got the Mormon Theology Seminar, Mormon Scholars in the Humanities, and others popping up. Speaking of blogging, there are a couple of really interesting articles that come out during this time period that are worth taking a look at. Patrick Mason writes, Mormon Blogs, Mormon Studies, and the Mormon Mind for the Fall 2012 issue. Emily Jensen, the web editor and business manager at Dialogue, wrote a great summary called Dialoguing Online, the Best 10 Plus Years of Mormon Blogging in the Summer 2014 issue that summarizes or actually has quotations from a number of really fantastic blog posts, and they're worth just checking out just in their short summaries. Nancy Ross and Jessica Finnegan also write Mormon Feminist Perspectives on the Mormon Digital Awakening, a study of identity and personal narratives that discuss the blogging and social media platforms where Mormon feminism is reborn in this period. That's in the winter 2014 issue. Speaking of feminist issues, there are a number of really important texts that come out of this uh, time period. And honestly, quite a few more than I expected, given the prominence that it had taken place in earlier uh, generations and earlier periods. And then it seemed to, as we had mentioned before, kind of disappear where there wasn't that much. Again, we see a ton of new, really important material coming out during this time period. Some are discussing things like Johnny Lingo, Holly Welker's critique in A Price Far Above Rubies versus Eight Cows, What's a Virtuous Woman Worth in the Spring 2010 issue, is a really great look at this uh, beloved but problematic uh, old Mormon film, Johnny Lingo. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich also returns to the journal after a long hiatus, writing Mormon Women in the History of Second Wave Feminism for the Summer 2010 issue. This article is really crucial because it retells LDS feminist history that had often seen LDS women as reacting to feminist thought or being influenced by it. But Laurel shows that Mormon women were co-creating feminist approaches to religion along with other religious women. Just a, a brief excerpt from, I think, this really important piece. Mormon women weren't passive recipients on the new feminism. We helped create it. Constructing a timeline of key events reinforced the point. In 1972, the year Rosemary Radford Ruther introduced feminist theology at Harvard Divinity School, Mormon feminists were teaching women's history at the LDS Institute of Religion in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It also offers a fuller and more contextualized history of early Mormon feminist groups and some reflection on early Mormon feminist interactions with dialogue. Again, I highly recommend this particular article. 
a letter to the editor in the winter 2010 issue takes uh, some uh, feminist questions to the next place and seems to anticipate something that's just right around the corner. Quote, I will consider joining the church or rejoining the church in this person's case when my sister has the authority to baptize me and my stepmother has the authority to ordain me to the priesthood. We are going to see the rise, as I said before, of the ordained women movement shortly after all of this. There seemed to be something in the air about breaking what was formerly really a taboo, even in Mormon feminist circles, to talk about women's ordination as a goal. But Dialogue is publishing actually a lot of diverse voices on this topic. Nylan McBain's really important uh, article, To Do the Business of the Church, a Cooperative Paradigm for Examining Gendered Participation Within Church Organizational Structure, comes out in the fall 2012 issue. Nylan is an important, uh, I, I guess I can accurately say as a sort of moderate feminist voice. This was originally given at the FAIR conference, or the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, and it was really in the context of a renewed feminist moment in the LDS church, with radical and more conservative wings. Ordained women, Nylan McBain, Valerie Hudson, were all must-read material during this time period, in addition, of course, to the online sources such as Feminist Mormon Housewives, WAVE, and other organizations that are popping up in this period. We've got other great articles like uh, Three Meditations on Women in the Priesthood from C.J. Kendrick, Rosalind Welch, and Ashmay Hoyland in the winter 2014 issue, again in the wake of the excommunication of Kate Kelly, who really followed the path of Sonia Johnson that we had discussed in the late 70s and early 1980s, both literally and figuratively. The final one that I'll mention in this category was Joanna Brooks's Mormon Feminism, The Next 40 Years, in the winter 2014 issue. This was a year before her and her co-editors put out Mormon Feminism Essential Writings from Oxford University Press. Here, Brooks talks about the period from the 1970s, where Mormon feminism is born in Boston, up to the present, and imagines what needs to be done as part of the future. She identifies four areas for Mormon feminism to focus on, rather five areas, theology, which I will admit probably is still relatively weak in terms of there being a revival, uh, feminist institutions, racial inclusion, financial independence for both organizations and individuals, and spiritual independence. Worth reading this piece. I want to turn to LGBT issues, which in a way, actually, we don't see that many of the articles dealing, uh, dealing with this topic during that time period, though I would say there may be some of the most important ones that come out during this era. In my own scholarship, I often refer to Alan Michael Williams' Mormon and Queer at the Crossroads in spring 2011, a fantastic article that reflects on some real tensions in LDS thinking about homosexuality. Scott C. Davis delivered a fabulous talk called The Fabulous Jesus, A Heresy of Reconciliation that was originally presented at the Faith and Knowledge Conference at Yale University. Uh, where was that? I think that one, that one was at Harvard. Fantastic one. I was there when it was, when it was delivered, and uh, it, was re- it was printed then in uh, dialogue worth reading. Not quite an article, not quite a sermon, but a really beautiful, beautiful piece. 
Wilfred Decos, uh, our as our two faiths have worked together, Catholicism and Mormonism on human life ethics and same-sex marriage is about the divergence between Catholic and LDS perspectives on same-sex marriage, despite cooperating on politics on a number of areas. And of course, I feel a little embarrassed to mention my own work here, but Towards a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology was published during this time period. It was in the winter 2011 issue, and there was a response by Joe Spencer in the spring 2012 issue, which is an argument basically about gender essentialism. In this article, I looked at what I thought were some of the most important issues that hadn't really been fleshed out, in my understanding, in the debates that Latter-day Saints were having about homosexuality. It seemed to be taken for granted among many who uh, basically thought that Latter-day Saint theology was irredeemably heterosexist, that it could only be based around heterosexuality. And I tried to look at the history, the scriptural texts, and the theology itself to see if there were any cracks in that system. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, that article ended up being, at the time, the most downloaded article that Dialogue had ever had in its history, and it we can't quite check the figures anymore, but it remains certainly in the one of the most, if not the most still, most downloaded and most read. I still get letters about this article every once in a while for people who are coming across it for the first time for how transformative they believed it to be. It also generated a lot of negative attention, I can say, I suppose, uh, where uh, many bloggers and uh, other Latter-day Saint academics uh, really strongly disagreed with my thesis. In time, however, I think that it has shown to be uh, sort of still an important contribution on this topic, and my thinking, of course, has evolved over the last 10 years, and I hope to write a follow-up on the 10-year anniversary next year that talks a little bit about how my thinking has changed and how I think the conversation developed around heterosexuality and Mormon theology as a category or as a concept. So stay tuned for that. Speaking of scripture... I want to turn to a number of important articles that come out during this time period. There are really great discussions, for instance, around Rene Girard's theory of culture and violence in religious ritual. Mark Sterling not only writes an article about this, but actually secures an interview with Rene Girard, who's one of the most famous theorists of, uh, of violence and ritual and religion during this time period. And we get Joe Spencer, who's now at BYU, appearing for the first time in dialogue, responding with Rene Girard and Mormon scripture. Scripture uh, in the following issue. Uh, and again, Joe uh, also responds to my article, as I mentioned. So we start to see him showing up on the scene uh, in, the, in the publishing world in, in this era. Blair Hodges, also at the Maxwell Institute, has a fantastic article on C.S. Lewis in the fall 2010 issue. Lewis was hugely popular for decades in LDS circles, though I hear him less and less cited these days. Anyway, part of the issue was to explain why C.S. Lewis was so popular among Latter-day Saints, and Hodges argues, part of Lewis's broad appeal results from an ecumenical view of other religions that is similar to, though looser than, that of many Latter-day Saints. So he's finding some interesting connections here that I don't think other people had seen between Latter-day Saint thought and C.S. Lewis. One of the most important articles to come out during this time period is actually about scripture and math, and let me explain that. Christopher Smith and Andrew Cook publish an article, The Original Length of the Scroll of Hor, H-O-R, 
which put an end to the missing scroll hypothesis for the book of Abraham. They used mathematical calculations to determine the spiral of the scroll and how long it might have been. There wasn't enough space, they demonstrate, for the scroll to contain a hieratic edition of the book of Abraham. This had been the theory of John Gee, and Gee pushed back with an alternative reading. Andrew Cook demolishes this argument in the summer 2012 issue, Formulas and Facts, a response to John Gee, in pointing out the mathematical errors that Gee makes in his alternative theory that actually turn out to be the exact same mathematical formula that Cook and Smith had developed, and it leads to the exact same mathematical results when you calculate it correctly. So again, if you're into math and if you want to know a little bit more about this, uh, a fascinating new kind of approach to resolving this issue in the Book of Abraham studies that uh, uh, Dialogue was really proud to publish. We've got other great articles uh, on, on the Midrashic imagination in the Book of Mormon from Robert Reese, Alma's experiment in faith, a broader context from Heather Hardy. I want to point to a couple of other interesting articles that come out during this time period that pair up around a theme. Grant Hardy's The King James Bible and the Future of Missionary Work in the summer 2012 issue and Ronan James Head's Unity and the King James Bible make the case of the diminishing utility of the King James Version, not on the basis of its inferiority as a biblical translation or its historical deficiencies, which it has many of both, but because it increasingly relegates Latter-day Saints to a smaller and smaller circle of Christians who continue to use it. I'll note that 2011 was the 400th year anniversary of the King James Bible, so it had a lot of people thinking about it during that time period. Roger Terry follows up in the fall 2014 issue about uh, with an article, Archaic Pronouns and Verbs in the Book of Mormon, What Inconsistent Usage Tells Us About Translation Theories. I'll add to this a related piece by Roger, uh, by Roger Terry uh, the next year in the summer 2014 issue, What Shall We Do With Thou?, Modern Mormonism's Unruly Usage of Archaic English Pronouns. These four articles that sort of cluster together around the strangeness of Mormon discourse in using the King James Version, in the way that Latter-day Saints often talk and use archaic pronouns and including in prayer, and their role in texts like the Book of Mormon, I think provides an interesting set of issues that uh, Latter-day Saints were really kind of talking about in more sophisticated ways during this time period. We've got other great articles on the Book of Mormon. Jacob Bender's post-structural reading of the Book of Mormon in the fall 2012 issue and a response by Mark Thomas in the winter 2012 issue, and Clyde Ford's The Book of Mormon, the Early 19th Century, Debates over Universalism and the Development of the Novel Mormon Doctrine of Ultimate Rewards and Punishments, returns to a long-standing debate about the role of salvation as it's represented in the Book of Mormon and how that changes in Latter-day Saint understanding over time through Joseph Smith's theology. Finally, Brian Warnick, Benjamin Johnson, and Sang Hyun Kim, Hospitality in the Book of Mormon in Spring 2014, wraps up the Book of Mormon and scriptural contributions during this time period. Joseph Smith gets a lot of attention in this era as well, and there are some really great new articles on this topic. 
Benjamin Park's Salvation Through a Tabernacle, Joseph Smith, Parley P. Pratt, and Early Mormon Theologies of Embodiment is a piece that I personally have gone back to a number of times, which set Joseph Smith's theory of embodiment among other Enlightenment-era materialisms. Sam Brown, another article that I've gone back to a number of times in the summer 20, I'm sorry, in the spring 2011 issue, the early Mormon chain of belonging about the role of kinship and ceilings in early Mormonism that sets the stage for his later book on a similar topic. Joseph Smith, as a creative interpreter of the Bible in the summer 2010 issue by Heike Reisinen, and Joseph Smith and Hermeneutical, Hermeneutical Crisis by Christopher Smith in the summer 2010 issue are further evidence that Latter-day Saints were still thinking a lot about Joseph Smith. There's a special issue on a retrospective on the scholarship of Richard Bushman with a roundtable of huge names in American religion in the fall 2011 issue that I highly recommend. Steve Taysom comes out with an important article, Abundant Events or Narrative Abundance, Robert Orsi and the Academic Study of Mormonism, uses Orsi's approach to unexplainable religious events, abundant events, in order to analyze gold, the Golden Plate story. Neil Carmack, Joseph Smith, Captain Kidd, Lore, and treasure-seeking in the New York and New England during the early Republic, again, contributes to a long-standing scholarly uh, question around treasure-seeking and early Mormonism, and William Smith's early Mormon priesthood revelations. Text, Impact, and Evolution is a fascinating history of priesthood in Joseph Smith's time that until recently hadn't really been topped. Again, this is one of the most important articles. I think uh, uh, Jonathan Stapley's work contributes again along these lines, but highly recommend that text for one of the most important uh, studies of, of early Mormon priesthood teachings. Speaking of early Mormon priesthood teachings, plural marriage shows up, but a lot less frequently than it had in earlier periods. Carmen Hardy, a classical uh, historian, a very important historian from this time period, The Persistence of Mormon Plural Marriage, offers a fascinating discussion on the history and theor of plural marriage and theorizes on its persistence and reflects on the continued implications of historical and contemporary plural marriage for the mainstream church. That's in the winter 2011 issue. Christopher Bly, the great historian and co-editor of the Journal of Mormon History now, writes, The highest class of adulterers and whoremongers, plural marriage, the Church of Jesus Christ Cutlerite, and the construction of memory in the 2013 issue. Really one of the foremost historians of, uh, of uh, uh, Latter-day Saint uh, um, uh, splinter groups. Russell Swenson, uh, sorry, Russell Stevenson, Manly Virtue, Defining Male Sexuality in 19th Century Mormonism is another contribution, though a little bit orthogonal to the main question of plural marriage, about the roles of sexual virtue in 19th century, Mormon, 19th century Mormonism for men. There are a couple of important articles on science and religion during this time period. Stephen Peck, BYU biologist, Crawling Out of the Primordial Soup, A Step Toward the Emergence of an LDS Theology Compatible with Organic Evolution in the Spring 2010 is the latest addition to this long-standing debate of uh, evolution and Latter-day Saint thought. Another one by Stephen, Cra by Stephen Cranny uh, is uh, A Divine Darwinism, Comprehensible Christianity, and the Atheist's Wager 
Richard Rorty on Mormonism is an interview that comes out in the summer 2010 issue. And David Bailey's Creationism and Intelligent Design, Scientific and Theological Difficulties in the Fall 2010 issue are the entries on this important topic from this time period. Stephen Peck also guest edits a special issue in 2011 on the environment. And this is increasingly a space where new Latter-day Saint voices are coming into uh, contact with the theological tradition and increasing concerns over social issues. George Handley, I just wanted you to hear some of the titles from this. These are so great. George Handley, Faith and the Ethics of Climate Change. Craig Golly, Enix Vision and Gaia, an LDS perspective on environmental stewardship. Brian Wallace, Flexibility in the Ecology of Ideas, Revelatory Religion and the Environment. James Brown, Wither Mormon Environmental Theology. Bart Welling, The Blood of Every Beast, Mormonism and the Question of the Animal. I'd love to see so much more work on that issue. And there's also a sermon in this issue from Peter McMurray, This Little Light of Ours, Ecologies of Revelation. I highly recommend anybody who's interested in this topic and revisiting that special issue. A couple of the other interesting publications that come out during this time period are on politics. Gary Bergeras, The Richard D. Pohl and J. Kenneth Davies Cases, Politics and Religion at BYU During the Wilkinson Years, is in the spring 2012 issue. Very important article from Armand Moss, one of the longest contributors to the journal, Rethinking Retrenchment, Course Corrections on the Ongoing Campaign for Respectability in Winter 2011, is a follow-up to his 1994 masterpiece, The Angel and the Beehive, where he reflects on the predictions and the explanatory value that his model of sociology of Mormonism between retrenchment and assimilation had uh, how, how that had developed in the ensuing years since his book. And another great article that I just love, Samuel Web- Weber's Shake Off the Dust of Thy Feet, The Rise and Fall of Mormon Ritual Cursing. I wish it would rise again sometimes. That's it for this issue. I want to just mention that in the coming weeks, we'll be releasing some exciting audio short stories taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. These stories really bring to life the diversity of voices and perspectives that we like to support here at Dialogue, and we're really looking forward to sharing it with you. Here's a sneak peek of this new, exciting content for the Dialogue Out Loud series. He opens the door and steps outside into the warm sun. And he is no longer he. He is someone else. He is now a woman. This woman is not Mormon. She is younger than he is, but is still middle-aged like he is. She is married, like he. She is married to a woman. She is wearing a flowing skirt and a sleeveless blouse and a shawl that is also a scarf. She is someone else, but she is still also he. She is both attracted to and repelled by the building behind her. 
which he knows all about and she knows very little about. There is some separation between those two pools of knowledge, but she eddies around both. So does he. He wants to explore this further. She just wants to find her car and leave. He finds that he wants what she wants, because he is also she. As I sat in my cold metal fold-up chair, leaning up against the itchy carpet walls that sometimes caught onto my dress, I would take mental notes of all the things I needed to do to keep my virtue. No dating until 16. Easy. Already done. Still no dates yet. No single dating until 18. Sounds great. Don't be alone together after dark. Simple enough. Don't make out or lie on top of each other. Again, super easy. Anything more than holding hands sounds super uncomfortable and gross. Man, I'm really good at this whole following Christ thing. I'm going to be a worthy Mormon bride in no time. The tenor of God's voice changes, as if on stage, and she makes grand sweeping motions with her hands as they walk, as though she could reveal the nature of reality by drawing attention to it. Once there was a great queen who possessed magical powers. Anything she wished would happen in an instant. She explored every pleasure known, day in and day out. She did nothing but whatever she pleased. Dancing, music festivals, sex, intoxication, art, food, company, sightseeing, whatever she wanted. Eventually, she had done everything a billion times over, and she grew bored. So, one day, she wished for a surprise. Just a little one. A moment later, a bird dropped a white mess directly upon her nose, and startled, she laughed in delight before returning to her wine. The next day, she wished for another surprise, so that night, while sleepily dancing as she had a trillion times, she slipped and broke her ankle, filled with joy and not a little pain. She repeated the wish, over and over, surprise after surprise, wishing to not know what is going to happen, increasing in elaborateness and frequency until, at long last, She ended up standing before me today talking to God. Amazement spreads on Aldria's face as the meaning sinks in. You mean... This parable is your story. This is the story of all human souls. You are the queen, my sweet Eldria. You can have any wish, and so this life of surprises, this awareness... Your sense of this isolated moment where you are blind to the future, this is your wish. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. 
a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture, including hit shows like Mormon News Report. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network.